Jonah chapter 4. And uh, it really is one of those sermons that I don't want to preach, actually. Um, and uh, it, it cuts deep, I think. And, and, and actually, having said that, if we're going to understand the entire story of Jonah, we need to really get to grips with this last section. Um, because actually, it gives us the interpretation, I think, of the whole of the book. Um, it gives us the answers, really, for why Jonah did what he did and, and the reasons and what maybe was going on in his heart and his mind. And, it, and I think that when we understand Jonah 4, uh, really the conclusion, the climax of the whole story, um, it just reveals one of the reasons why we ourselves run from mercy. That's the name of the, 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 the title of the sermon series, Running from Mercy. And so really to, I think, understand what, what, what chapter 4 is saying to us, um, we're going to be thinking of this concept, that I, I've called it anyway, called the spirit of Jonah. The spirit of Jonah. And, and by that I mean, so I suppose, the inner attitude, you know, the, 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 the heart and the mind behind what drives a man like Jonah. And if we can understand the spirit of Jonah, I think that will really serve us well and uh, uh, figure out as well how and that can influence us and in, in how we run from, from mercy. So first of all, we're going to be talking about detecting the spirit of Jonah. Um, secondly, we'll look at diagnosing the spirit of Jonah. Uh, and thirdly and finally, the cure for the spirit of Jonah. Medical theme. You can tell my medical background coming out. The detection, the diagnosis, and the cure. So first of all, what, what do we mean? The detection of the spirit of Jonah. We see that in verses 1 to 4 of Jonah chapter 4. Um, if this is your first Sunday with us, you might be vaguely familiar with Jonah. He's the guy that got swallowed by the, the whale, the big fish, as it says in the Bible. And you're right, you know, you maybe have heard those things through uh, Sunday school teaching or something as you were growing up as a kid, that sort of idea. Uh, but last week we saw in Jonah chapter 3, it's a very short book, it's only four chapters. Jonah chapter 3, Jonah eventually went to the city of Nineveh, um, a city that was very evil, did evil things, very, very much suffering and injustice and all sorts of things. Um, wasn't part of Israel, it was part of Assyria. Anyway, he was called to go to that place to preach the message of God's justice and mercy to uh, that city. And, and, and what happened was when he eventually went and he, he preached that message... The entire city, as it says there, from the greatest to the least, from the king uh, right down to the, the, the poorest people, and, and even below them, the animals seem to be involved in this too, somehow or other. Everybody um, turned back to God with sorrow for their, their wrongdoing and coming to him for mercy. This mass repentance. And it says at the end of chapter 3, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to the people of Nineveh. He did not do it. And so then we start chapter 4, with Jonah's reaction to this mass turning of God, of an, pretty much an entire city, to the God um, of Israel. And, uh, you know, I suppose, particularly if you're from a, a church background or a Christian sort of idea, um, if, you, if that would happen in your city or your town, you would, you would be beyond excited. I think you would be amazed. I think you would be... Uh, you know, on a high that would probably take several weeks to come down from. If, if you see people in Belfast turning en masse, hundreds of thousands of people, back to God in, in, in humble repentance, you'd be pretty amazed at what God has done. In verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Exceedingly is kind of an old school word, isn't it? It's like, um, is it Mr. Kipling? Exceedingly good cakes. You know, it means amazingly good, you know, spectacularly good. And, and it says that, that he would, Jonah was spectacularly angry. 
And that immediately, in our minds, doesn't it, flags up a problem here. Why would anyone in that situation, particularly if you're coming from a religious sort of background, a religious um, uh, culture, I suppose, why would you be unhappy? Why would you be angry? Uh, beforehand, before this section, we had no idea why Jonah decided to run away from God and why when God called him to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, God, uh, uh, Jonah went in the opposite direction. We have no idea. But now we do. Now, uh, I suppose, the, the, the plaster is ripped off and we see the ugly thing underneath. It says in verse 2, this is what I was afraid of. This is why I, I fled from my country. This is why he says I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why is that? This is why I ran because I knew, it says, that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why I did it. I knew you would show kindness to those people and I'm utterly enraged. I just, think, I just think that is such a shocking thing in this entire story. Maybe this is the bit that they left out at Sunday school when you heard the story of Jonah and the whale. I'm not sure. This is fairly a familiar line, you know, almost like a, it would have, um, this, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. It would have uh, been you know, filled lyrics of, of, of the songs of Israel. It would have uh, cropped up time and again in their, in their scriptures. Um, they, they knew that this is what God is like. And, and as, as Jonah saw the message going out, his own message, the message to come back to God, and saw the people responding to that God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, Jonah was filled with rage. He was filled with anger. It says he was so bitter and angry and annoyed at God that he wished he could die. He just couldn't handle what God had done for those people. And he just, he couldn't kill God, he couldn't kill the Assyrians or the Ninevites. Just kill me, Lord. That's how angry he was. Why is he so angry? I think, I think we need to put some facts together to help us understand what's driving his anger, his, his deep bitterness. We know that Jonah knew what God was like. He, he, he's recited this already, slow to anger, you know, um, abounding in love. We, we know that's what he knew of God. We also know that God had sent him to preach that message to the people of Nineveh. He refused, not because he was afraid to do it or he had some sort of stage fright, but because he hated the people of Nineveh. Um, you see, Jonah had grown up under um, the threat of this great nation, the nation of Assyria, um, more powerful than his own. He, Jonah loved his country. He loved Israel. Uh, he, he, he loved the fact that they had a special relationship with God that no one else had in, in that area at all. And he hated the fact that Israel, over the years, over the generations, from its sort of heyday, had declined in influence and power in that region. And he couldn't stomach the fact that a new power, a, a new uh, nation rose up stronger, more influential than his own. This, this, this nation of Assyria was taking control, was gobbling up more and more land around it. And Jonah absolutely resented it. He despised it. He said, they are taking what is ours. They are restricting us. They are taking away our rights. They are eating up our culture. They are outsiders. They are pagans. They are foreigners. And so the thought of God showing them mercy 
Turn his stomach. Mm, so enraged. And as we see at the beginning part of Jonah, he did his best to rebel, didn't he? He, he tried to run away from God's call. A great time and great expense and great effort. It didn't work. God sent the storm. God sent the fish. And he came to the bottom of himself, Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, and he realized there was no point running away from God because God met him in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the sea. Remember that? And spat him out onto dry land. Go again. And so this time, probably grudgingly, he went again. He obeyed through gritted teeth. He preached this message. Forty days, or Nineveh, Nineveh will be destroyed unless you come back to God. And just imagine the horror then, as he saw them responding. I mean, this is the sort of thing that as preachers we dream of, you know, uh, it catching fire and that fire traveling among the entire congregation and then sort of bursting out, I suppose, and people, you know, running out with this message, catching fire. This is the stuff of revival. This is the stuff that, that, that almost never happens except once every, you know, uh, several hundred years or something in God's grace. This stuff never happens. This is the stuff you dream of. And, and not just one or two people sort of responded quietly to Jonah's message. But it, it seemed to wash through the entire city. He preached almost like setting a few fires, and then that fire caught. And it seemed to be that everybody was sharing that message, and, and it went up to the ears of the king, from the greatest to the least, it said there. This citywide mourning of sin and this turning to God. Incredible. But here we have this, this guy, Jonah, who was utterly livid, who was gutted, who, who, who just saw red. He wanted the fierce anger of God to come upon these people. He wanted the wrath of God to come upon these people. What, what he saw was God's mercy and his kindness to them. You can start to understand, I think, and detect, can't we, the, the spirit of Jonah. Somebody who's very familiar um, with God's name and God's character and, and, and knowledge, I suppose, but just doesn't want it to be true. Or not all the time. Or he's happy for it to be true for him and his people, but not happy for it to be true for them, those people, whoever they may be. It's the spirit of Jonah. He's quite happy for blessing, but he just hates to see it going elsewhere. It makes him boil with anger. He likes God to be merciful to him. He hates God being merciful to those people. This is the spirit of Jonah. Right? It's mean-spirited. It's small-hearted. It's narrow-minded. It's hypocritical. Not at all like God, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the utter opposite to all those things. He's angry at God for being who God is. It's just ugly. The spirit of Jonah helps us to understand why he did what he did at the start. So that's the detection of the spirit of Jonah. We're starting to understand a bit about what drove him and motivated him. But then, secondly, what's the diagnosis? Um, we've started to detect what it is. What's the diagnosis? Well, we see um, in verses 5 through to 11, I suppose 5 to the end of it, God is bringing Jonah on a journey of his own. We think he's been through enough already, having you know, run, uh, ended up in the boat, sunk to the bottom, swallowed by the fish, but there's more, there's more. 
Uh, God treats him tenderly. He wants to show him the error of his ways. It's likely that Jonah, when he entered the city, he entered on the west side of the city of Nineveh, uh, and he took three days to go through it, preaching just like he was told to do, three days, and eventually emerged on the east side of the city, having gone through. And so that's what we see in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he was going to make a booth, it says, a little, a little shack of some form or other. And the, the idea was that he was going to go and sit up on the mountain that overlooked, or the hill or whatever, that overlooked the city, and wait for the light show. Wait for the lightning. Wait for the burning sulfur to come down. The wrath of God, the fire. I'm going to get myself comfortable, thought Jonah. I'm just going to wait. Don't forget the message was, you've got 40 days to turn to God. So the likelihood is that Jonah did his preaching for three days and then went up, um, built this little booth uh, and, and waited, waited, I'm going to wait out these 40 days. I can't wait to see them getting destroyed. He probably thought in his mind about the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, back in Genesis uh, 19 that God destroyed uh, through sulfur and lightning. Jonah says, I'm going to enjoy this. Great view from here. It says he waited. And in verse 6, God starts to speak to him and act upon him. Now the Lord God, says, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad. There's that word again. Exceeding rage. Exceedingly glad. But then it says in verse 7, then God appointed, there he is again, a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed, again, a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. There he goes again. Stroppy individual, or what? Emotionally charged, highly strung, goes from being exceedingly happy or angry to exceedingly happy and back again. But through all this, God is teaching him. He's revealing what's going on in his heart. He's trying to diagnose the problem so they might come up to Jonah's mind. How are these things all connected? Well, if verses 6 through 9 are the lock, this, this uh, you know, plant that grows up in this worm, verses 10 and 11 are the key that God comes and unlocks. Let's read together verses 10 and 11. God says this, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What's God saying? He's saying, Jonah, don't you see? You are so concerned for this plant. You're so annoyed at how short-changed you feel. You love that plant, but did you, did you plant it? Did you water it? Did you look after it? Did you make it grow? No, you did none of that, Jonah, but you loved it. You showed great concern for it, and you pitied it when I took it away from you. No words back from Jonah. If that's how you feel, Jonah, about a single plant, should I not have greater concern for the people of Nineveh, says God? 120,000 people that I did plant, I did tend, I did water, I did grow up to prosper, they are people. People who can't tell their right hand from their left. That's a, 
that's a, a Hebraic, a Hebrew way of saying that they, they were ignorant of God and his word and his ways. They didn't know him. They didn't know how to love him and follow him. Why would they? They're not the people of Israel. They don't have the scriptures and the prophets. See, in that comparison between the plants and the people, Jonah's heart is exposed bare, and it's just ugly. He loves the plant, but he hates the 120,000 people inside this great city. We get a glimpse, don't we, of what's, what's driving him, and it's not pleasant. And that's how the story ends. That's it. It just ends abruptly, doesn't it? You know, sometimes I think of the, the, the duff duff scene in, uh, in EastEnders. If you ever watch EastEnders, they always end with the duff duff scene. And someone said something, done something stupid, duff duff duff. That's the, the beginning of the, the, you know, the end music. It always sounds like duff duff uh, to me. And, um, you know, the idea is there's a cliffhanger, right? So you go back tomorrow and watch what happens next. So we've got a duff duff scene here, but we've no idea what happens next. We don't know how Jonah responds, do we? Does he get it? Does the penny drop? Does he realize how hypocritical he's been, how hard-hearted he is, how narrow-minded he is towards God and the things of God? So as we read Jonah 4, and it just sort of jars us, it stops right there, we, we, we leave it with a sense of unfinished business. Maybe, maybe uh, you've, you've discovered this when you watch a movie, go to, go to the cinema, whatever, um, and, and, and some movies just start well, there's a climax in the middle, and then it ends well, everybody's happy, and there's just a nice happily ever after thing at the end. And they're okay, those sort of movies, aren't they? Um, but I, I think, personally, for my um, preferences, I suppose, some of the best movies uh, are the ones that end with a question. They're just sort of unanswered. You're just not sure what happens next. And so you go away from the, the movie theater thinking, I wonder what they're, they're going to do with that. Or if I was in that position, what would I have done? You sort of, the story sort of carries on working in your mind, and you've no idea, really, what goes on. I, I think that's exactly what's going on here with this book. I think that's why Jonah the, ends so abruptly. So, so I think we're forced to sort of start thinking to ourselves, if you were Jonah, having had all those experiences, what would you have done with this knowledge that God has revealed to you? Or more importantly, I suppose, if you carry the spirit of Jonah within you, how would you respond to this teaching, this treatment from God? Um, perhaps more of my medical background coming out here, but what I'm going to do, uh, I hope just to sort of uh, leave you uh, with these things in our final talk here, is to offer you five diagnostic tests that we can run, uh, five diagnostic tests that we can run on our own hearts. And I'm going to give them to you and allow you a few moments to think about them. Um, we're not going to do show of hands here. Okay, don't worry. Um, but uh, the answer is either yes or no. And, and you can answer to yourself uh, silently and quietly. No one else will know your answer, but please be honest with yourself. Here's a diagnostic test to figure out if you or I have the spirit of Jonah. Number one, yes or no. Do you ever feel angry or annoyed at God for blessing other people in certain ways, but not you? Yes or no? Number two. Is there a certain type of person that you particularly dislike? 
maybe a certain lifestyle, a certain nationality, a certain culture, that you would definitely not befriend or extend grace and mercy towards? Yes or no? Number three. Have you, particularly this is if you're a church person, right? Have you ever stopped giving or serving or praying because you want to limit God from blessing other people? Yes or no? Number four. Do you have a strong idea of the kind of people that church is for? And those who definitely won't fit in. And fifth and final diagnostic test, yes or no? Do you delight in the misfortune of other people? How do you get on? It's not very scientific, I know that. But it's designed to probe the kind of attitudes that lie behind the spirit of Jonah. You might Diagnose it in yourself. I wonder if you answered yes to any of those. Most of them. Maybe all of them, I don't know. Only you know. By the way, I tried this test on myself. And uh, it's only fair, I think, if if I'm expecting you to go through it, I would do it myself. And how many do you think I said yes to? Um, I'm not going to say that, but I answered yes to some of them. So if the writer of Jonah leaves us hanging on the cliff edge like he has, then what are we supposed to do? How do we resolve this tension um, at the end of this section of the book? Um, whether, 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 whether Jonah actually sort of... Um, uh, we, we don't know what happened, obviously. Uh, Bible scholars would say that most likely Jonah um, was the person who uh, either wrote this down about himself or went and told other people who wrote down the, the book of Jonah. Who else would know these things and the conversation that was had between God and all the rest of it? Um, so, so we can only assume that he carried on and did, did okay. He was happy to tell his story of, look, look at how stupid I was and look at how far from God I was and look at what God has done to me now. Maybe, maybe that was what was going on. But the reality is we don't know what actually happened to him. We don't know what happened between him and God. We don't know what happened to his heart. But it leaves us on an edge, doesn't it? We're given a choice. Do we, do we copy Jonah in his hypocrisy, his hard-heartedness, Or do we realize that there is something better, something more beautiful for us? We've thought of the detection of the spirit of Jonah, the diagnosis. Thirdly and finally, then, we'll look at the cure. What is the cure? If you said yes to any of those, what do we do about it? Um, If it's lurking in ourselves. There's no quick fixes here. There's no chapter five, right? We don't see Jonah making sacrifices, repenting of his sins and planting a church in Nineveh. He didn't do any of those things. Um, but I think the, the book of Jonah helps us to see Jonah, warts and all, his bad attitudes, his inconsistencies, his small view of God, in contrast with God, who is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. He was slow to anger with Jonah. He's slow to anger with the people of Nineveh. He's slow to anger with you. He's gracious and compassionate to you. And this is good news. Amen. For those who are far from God, who've turned their backs on God, 
Because when we turn to him, when we come to an end of ourselves and we turn to him, this is the kind of God, this is the God who we turn to face. The one who is gracious and compassionate. He's, he's for you. And I think that once you realise that you, like Jonah, are a recipient of God's great mercy and his compassion, you will start to see the world differently. That's what's, what's going on. And the Bible teaches us that there is nothing in each of us that has caused God, God to show his love and his mercy and his compassion on you. The reason why he does it is simply because that's the kind of God he is. He is a God out of his own heart, as it were, full of grace, full of mercy, wants to love you and save you and will give you the best gifts if you would only turn and receive them. But the, the important thing here I think we all have to understand, and Jonah hopefully understood it, was that we don't deserve God, we haven't earned God, we haven't worked to get God. God is gracious. And that's so hard for us. That's so hard for us today to understand because I think we live in what we can describe as a conditional world, you know, where everything is conditional. You do something for me and I'll pay you. Or you do something for me and I'll owe you. I'll owe you a favour. You know, you pay a fee, you get the service. You put your money in, out comes a Coke, whatever you order. But that sort of idea of, of money in, product out, ends up in every area of our lives. Not just in the services that we pay for, but sometimes our relationships as well. The deeper things, the non-financial transactions. I think I've put my, something into this relationship, I expect something back out of it. And, and so it goes. We have these expectations on our friends. Well, I've done this for you, so therefore you do that back for me. On our church, we give something, we expect something in return. This is conditionality. That's how our world is wired up. That's how our economy is wired up. That's how our relationships are wired up. But here's the problem. We, we bring that attitude to God. And we expect him to work for us. We think he should act how we want him to act because we've done something for him, we've served him, we've turned up to church, we've put a few quid in the, the collection, whatever it might be. I've done this for you, God, therefore you must act according to what I want. But that's not how God's grace works. It doesn't work like that. God's grace, his mercy, his kindness is based on one-sided love. God is giving us good things. He's giving us himself because he is gracious and because he is compassionate and for no other reason. It is his good pleasure to, to show his grace to us, his mercy. He loves to do it. That's why he does it. And so I think when we understand that, the grace um, is, is almost one-sided love, we could say, yes, we respond to it, but ultimately it's from God. It's the great leveler. It's great news, but it's the great leveller. It means we're all on the same level together. So whether we've fallen short of God and his purposes for our lives, whether we've gone in over our heads, whether we've sunk to the bottom of the sea, whether we've been engulfed in the darkness like Jonah did, God's grace and his mercy comes to you from outside of you, not from within comes from outside of you. He stoops down to pick you up. Not your good living, not your religious acts. It comes from God, from his heart towards you. 
that he would get down and save you and rescue you and love you. He's gracious and compassionate. You see, the spirit of Jonah starts to crop up when we forget that grace is grace. When we reject it or we just assume it. When grace goes out the window, God's character goes out the window, we start thinking that we've earned it. That we've been blessed because we've been good boys and girls. But that's not how God operates towards us. So the cure to the spirit of Jonah is, 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 is to understand and embrace the grace of God flowing from who he is. But let's wrap up, let's sum up here. How does all this play out? How does this help us with the spirit of Jonah if you've detected any of that in your heart? Well, even Jonah ends here, but the Bible doesn't end here. God doesn't stop speaking through the book of Jonah. He carries on. And the Bible plays out this amazing story that terminates, I suppose, the great storyline terminates in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And the Apostle John has this vision of heaven. He's been uh, in the Holy Spirit, sort of almost, as it were, swept up to heaven. And, and, and he's exposed to these scenes of unimaginable joy and, and rapture and, and, and life and wonder and love. Amazing. And when, when he is able to, to, to get, take stock of what's going on, he sees in the centre of heaven this throne and he says on this throne uh, was one who looked like a lion and a lamb. The lamb who was slain. How can someone look like both? I don't know. Uh, the, the thing with these sort of books of the Bible is they're just straining at language to try and describe what, what amazing things they've just seen. The lion and the lamb. And he didn't see an actual lion, he didn't see an actual lamb. He saw something, someone more powerful than a lion, more meek than a lamb. He saw Jesus. And fast forward to Revelation 5, you can see it here, verse 9. This is the noise that was erupting from this heavenly scene in verse 9. All of heaven says, sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, O Lamb, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, that is, you saved people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. People from every culture and every background and every church denomination and every lifestyle every language, every race, every nation, standing around the throne of God, worshipping him. And we today here, as we meet as Foundation Church, we're just a tiny little number. We're just one of thousands of cultures and tribes and nations that will be represented one day on that day. But here, this is the thing that we're circling around, the thing that unifies us, the thing that helps us to gain access to that heavenly uh, scene, that place of pulsating life and joy. It's not our good luck. It's not our good performance. It's not our good deeds. It's not being from a certain background or a superior culture. It's because we have been purchased, ransomed, by the blood of Jesus. That's what gets us there. You see, when Jesus shed his bloods when he died on the cross that was him 
paying for us, winning us. And that is purely a gift of God's grace. And here's the kicker. I think this is what I want to leave you with this morning. To the extent that you realize that you belong to God by grace alone is the extent to which you can extend grace to other people. I'll say that again. To the extent that you realize that you belong to God by his grace alone is the extent that you can show grace to other people. To those people that we are tempted to ignore and hate and minimize and exclude. Those people that we think are too far from the mercy of God. Those people that we think, I don't want to share the good news with you because I don't like you. If that's rising in our hearts, the spirit of Jonas, because we've forgotten grace. You've forgotten who you are. When you embrace God's graciousness and compassion to you in Jesus, the spirit of Jonah will be destroyed, will be crushed. Then our distaste for those people who don't fit into our narrow categories will start to fade away. Then we'll start to embrace people who are different to us. We'll start to share our lives with them more and more. We'll share Jesus with them through the gospel. That's what we'll do. The more we realize that we belong to God by his grace alone, the more we become a church full of people who understand and enjoy his grace. And that church grows and it becomes more full of life and more effective and more impactful in the kingdom of God and the surrounding peoples. It becomes a church where people from all walks of life will come home to God, will find him and hear him and give their lives to him. The more we understand and embrace this idea of God's grace to us in Jesus, the more we celebrate that, the more this place will become a source of life and strength to the community around us. Especially to the least and the lost and the lowly. To the misfits, to the outsiders, to the wanderers. Have you been running from mercy? Or maybe this morning you should come home to God.